Welcome to Mimi UU. I'm Mimi Nicklin, the host of the show. This podcast is anonymous and it's audio only without names to protect from unconscious bias or judgment and to allow true empathy to grow. The goal of the show is to share diverse stories from around the world by giving people a platform to share openly so that other people like you can understand diverse realities from around the globe. We exist to create empathy and not just talk about it. Welcome to Me, Me, You, You. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Me, Me, You, You. It is always an absolute pleasure to find new guests on the other side of the world that are willing to come and talk about stories that truly change lives, that truly matter, and that so often aren't spoken about enough. And today's story does exactly that. Today's story is really looking at the journey recovering from a life where drugs played a significant role to a life where drugs no longer play a role. This is something we hear about in the media so much, particularly in the years uh, since 2020. Uh, There's a lot of discussion out there around mental wellness and health, around escapism, around people turning to alcohol or drugs to help them face some of the chaos that our world is in. And my guest today is very kindly and very openly here to talk about his journey and what that meant and where he's got to today. But before we kick off, I always start the show just by confirming that this is 100% anonymous and that as a guest, you are happy to be here sharing your story. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Well, welcome. Welcome to the show. Um, And as I said there in the introduction, as soon as I read about your story and why you wanted to share it with the world, I I felt inspired just to turn up today. So why don't we start there? Why why did you want to come on the show? And why do you think your story is one that is of interest to our world? Sure. Um, I think part of being in recovery... um, you know, the 12th step, no matter what fellowship you're part of, but the 12th step is um, to carry the message to the still suffering addict. And um, I try to practice that um, in all my affairs and being given the opportunity to speak about it. Um, yeah, I'll put my hand up and I'll gladly tell my story. Um, I think it's not completely for others. I think it helps me. It reminds me. <laughs> Um, it takes me back to where I was because I like to forget, um, every time a a milestone is shared, um, addicts, alcoholics will get to one year, two years, three years. Um, they traditionally will share the meeting, um, and some things, um, because they don't feel they want to or need to, or yeah, my, uh, my sponsor always says, uh, do it, (laughs) never say no. (laughs) Um, and I'm glad, I, yeah, I'm glad I don't say no, and I'm glad I speak about it. Yeah. Well, we are very glad you're speaking about it as well. You mentioned there, it reminds you about parts of the stories that sometimes you choose to forget. Why don't we, if you're comfortable with it, go back there a little bit to that story. Tell us about the journey that led you to becoming an addict. Um, yeah, so... Just on the forgetting part, you know, I, I think 
as an addict, I have this disease of forgetfulness. <laughs> like I, I do actually forget just how bad it was. Uh, it's the one thing, uh, how it started. I was, uh, like everyone else, I, I, I drank socially and had a really good time, but the, yeah, I'll play the life of the party, but I, I certainly thought I was. Um, I was working in nightclubs, uh, started as a bartender, became a DJ because I realized DJs made a lot more money than the bartenders and there wasn't <laughs> really as much work. <laughs> um, and yeah, for about four or five years, I was a DJ and, um, I got to travel the world a little bit. Um, it was an amazing lifestyle. It really was. And ironically, I was not doing drugs. Um, oh, I wasn't. I, I wasn't a drug addict, put it that way, when I was a DJ. I was pretty straight-laced and I drank a lot, but I, I didn't I, I didn't want to be taking drugs. And when I was about 24, 25, I started experimenting and taking drugs and kind of getting into the wrong crowd. And I could see that the if I never got out of DJing, if I, if I carried on and didn't make a change, I'd end up 10 years later, 20 years later, still being kind of where I was. And I really wanted to get out of it because I also could see where I was going and how I was behaving. And um, I decided I'll open a coffee shop. And ironically, that's when I really started using a lot of drugs. Um, I got out of DJing and opened a coffee shop. All of the stress. And yeah. The anxiety, the stress, I, I didn't know how to cope with it. And because I had already started taking drugs and I had this medicine that I knew would take things away from me, um, I ended up using more and more and more. And yeah, my, my addiction just became pretty full blown. Ironically, as you said, you know, when you left that nightlife, night scene, DJ world, which one could make the assumption that that is, you know, more, I guess, traditionally associated with drug taking you left that world to try and escape what you thought your destiny might be with drugs and then you opened your coffee shop but the stress and the anxiety of, of becoming a business owner led you to to turning to drugs more often was was that about escapism that was about stress release did you feel that you were able to run the business more effectively when you were taking drugs definitely didn't think I could make a run the business more effectively no not at all um, just a quick backstory. I'm, I'm standing in my kitchen, which I'm packing up right now. Um, and we're having this chat in the middle of me packing up my life in Cape Town because I'm moving to Zimbabwe. <laughs> and I, I brought along a, um, girl that I've just started seeing to help me with the trip and I'm showing her around Cape Town and, um, I'm kind of giving her the history of my life in Cape Town and I had a coffee shop in the shoots of I'm kind of, yeah, she asked me a very, because she asked me a great question. She said, um, what made you, what, why were you so sad in the coffee shop? Because she asked me, why did I sell it? It was a really popular place. And um, why were you so sad then, you know, when you were on drugs? And I thought about it and I thought, well, the truth is I'm still sad. I just know that it's okay to feel sad. Um, and it's okay to feel anxious and I've been taught how to process my feelings and that they're not going to kill me. Um, I think 
as simple as that sounds, it's it, it didn't seem that way before. I I drugs were the quickest hot day away from all my problems when I had that coffee shop and all the things that I was worried about and the stress and the fear. Just it's so fear based. Everything mm-hmm. is fear. Gets to the end of the month and you're not sure if you're gonna make all your payments and you're not sure you've got this person to pay, nothing to do in that. Quickest holiday you can pick is, you know, the medicine that I've found in drugs because it makes me stop feeling. And for the time that I did take those drugs, I didn't feel, you know, and it, you know, it wasn't fun. It really wasn't, you know, it starts off a little bit fun, but it really wasn't, yeah, it wasn't fun at all. And, um, yeah, I, I look back now at that time, the coffee shop and even to the beginning of the schnitzel travel, but I thought that I really needed to change my life again and that it might fix my problem again if I changed, you know, always looking outside of how, how I can change something in my life to make it better because I know that it's not right. But I opened the schnitzel place and uh, still carried on with the stress and the drugs and the whole active addiction. Um, and I definitely knew that I couldn't, to answer your question, I definitely knew that I couldn't run the business uh, more effectively. <laughs> I, I definitely, I definitely knew that. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's interesting to me as an outsider trying to imagine into your reality at that time. Your comment there about it wasn't fun, it definitely wasn't fun. And yet the option, the, the other side of that was sadness. So when you were taking drugs which weren't fun, that lack of fun was better than the feeling of sadness. Is is that what you were saying? Yes. Yeah. It's uh they say the best part of recovery is um that you get your feelings back. But the worst part about recovery is that you get your feelings back. <laughs> and if I think about why I was taking it and the, the loops I was in, um, yeah, it's, it's, I call it medicine, call it drugs, call it, to take away the feeling, I, I wanted to stop the sad feelings. But the truth is you're stopping the happy feelings too. So in that time, you can call it full-blown depression. You can call it, it was, it was, yeah, I wasn't mentally well, but I, I wasn't feeling any joy. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's, every time you get a feeling you want to, actually, I don't want to feel this and I don't want to think about this. So again, I'm going to go on my holiday. Well, um, yeah. I want to, I want to ask, uh, a potentially unusual question, but it strikes me listening to you. I, I run some small businesses as well at the moment, and I fully understand uh, the stress that comes with those times. I, I don't fully understand your reality, but I understand the stress. What about the money? Tell me about the money. As, as someone that doesn't know this world very well, I would imagine, perhaps incorrectly, so please do correct me if I'm wrong, that this medicine you're talking about is very expensive when you're also trying to establish small business. Very, very expensive. It's crazy. You get to the end of the month and you realize that you can't, you can't like pay everyone, but you've got a little bit of money in your account. So you use that on drugs. It's, it's, 
pretty crazy. You know, I was in terms of actual money. Yeah, I think I was spending more on drugs than I was on rent. Put it that mm -hmm. way. Um, and I wasn't just on one drug. You know, I was I was on a few. Yeah, and I, I wasn't buying the most expensive drugs, but I wasn't buying cheap ones either. Um, I was borrowing to get to the end of the month, and I'd need to borrow. I need to borrow money for rent, and I would. And my load account just kept on getting bigger. And it felt like there wasn't really consequences, but they were because this loan account is getting bigger. But like, hey, well, you know, I'll sort it out at some point and maybe we'll make some more money at some point. Tell me about um, the people that were lending you this money. And if you're uncomfortable to answer this, please tell me. But the people that were lending you the money to to pay the rent, to to carry on each month, I have I have two questions. Number one, do you think they knew why you had no money, as in where the money was going? Uh, so the first one's, I guess, around awareness. And and the second one, and although this word sounds a little strong and I, I don't really mean it, but it seems like the right one, did that make them complicit in the behavior continuing? So, yeah, I'll tell you. My father was who lent me the money for um, to start the business. Um, and if we were thought I would always borrow from him and it's, you know, it's a family loan, uh, you know, a loan from him, so it's, the interest is good for that way. Um, was he, yeah, I, he didn't know how bad my problem was. And the truth is, I, I wasn't borrowing money that often. We were kind of coming out at the end of the month. I just was never saving stuff. I wasn't saving money and I didn't, I didn't blow through a whole lot of money. Um, you know, if, if. The business was still doing okay and you know we were, most months we were coming out it wasn't every month that i had to borrow money um, and if there was ever if there was ever profit well i was using it um and i think with that kind of lifestyle you're not thinking about saving you're just spending and living life um very short-sighted mm -hmm. and uh, when i so telling parents was a huge thing in 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 me getting clean, um, you know, I'm a supposedly a Jewish kid from a good family and idea of my parents, you know, I knew that I needed treatment or I knew that I needed help. And like the thought of them finding out that I had a drug problem and like, I mean, I always imagine my mother saying the word cocaine and being like, oh my God. Like it was, you know, huge, like it was, it was a huge fear of mine to, like, that my parents would find out that their kid was a drug addict, you know? So the option of rehab, I didn't think, I thought I could never do that. I could never, I could never, ever tell them. Um, when we got to a point where I had a very, uh, life-changing conversation with a friend who was we weren't even that close. We just had a lot of love for each other. We were sitting on the beach and asked me how I was. And I said, I'm, I'm really not good. I'm severely depressed and I'm a full-blown drug addict. And she said, well, you've got to do everything you've got to do in order to fix this, you know. And I said, well, what do I do? Go to your parents. You're in a fortunate position. They could send you to, you know, any treatment center. Um, and I'm sure they'd be willing to help you. And I, I was like, started umming and ahhing and saying, no, I never tell them. And she just convinced me. She said, just do it. Just tell them. You need the help. Um, and yeah, she couldn't be somehow. And off to the beach, 
my dad and I said, I need to see you. And uh, I told him, you know, I told him first over my mom. I thought, you know, my dad will take it probably a bit better than my mother. And did he? Did he take it? You know, he was amazing. I, I tell the story a lot because uh, he made me realize, firstly, he's an amazing father. He really is. Um, but he, his response of, of what, you know, what I told him, I told him everything. I just, you know, he, he wasn't shocked. Um, it was, he, he was a little bit surprised, I suppose, but he, he said, boy, it's okay. You know, we could fix this. I, I wasn't, I was expecting way worse. And when he, when he, we can fix this, he said, you know, you're not terminally ill. You don't have cancer. This is something we can fix. This is actually not, not so bad. And on top of it, you know that you have a problem and you're coming to me. I didn't come to you. You know, they weren't, they literally didn't drag me out of, you know, and my rock bottom wasn't, I'd say this, luckily, you know, um, in front of a windscreen, I wasn't in hospital. I, I, I came to rock bottom by myself and I, I told him, you know, and he, he made me feel a lot better about the situation in his calmness and the way he approached it. And that's what we did. We uh, yeah, then we told my mom. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to hear what happened with mum. She she wasn't as shocked as I thought she would be, which made me realize they knew I wasn't well. They just thought they they knew I was unhappy, and they, it just made a bit more sense to them. Um, yeah, I think she was a little bit more fearful of everything. And, you know, just classically Jewish in. Uh, uh, it's like a built-in neurotic nerve that I think Jewish mothers have, you know, that, uh... <laughs> but she was also amazing. She was and super loving and yeah, that I, I was in, incredibly lucky what they took it, you know, and I, I, I do know how fortunate I was. They took it really well. I mean, like you said, very fortunate that you have such open, supportive, loving, loving parents, but. Here's another another big question for you. What about the community around your parents? Was there conflict? Was there judgment? Was there tension? Because, of course, your parents' response was to you as their son and their love for you. But there, of course, there are consequences of of all of these realities, right, in 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 our communities. And and how was that? When I when I told them, I felt this incredible relief. Um, Genuinely, like, like the most massive weight had been lifted off my shoulder. And had they told them, I, re I felt like I could tell anyone. Like, really and truly, I could tell anyone. And I did. I, I was in, I'm fortunate that I wasn't employed, that I wasn't, I didn't, like, have a job that I had. I didn't, like, maybe my boss was rich. I didn't have any of that. Um, I'm not a public figure. I'm not any anything of that sort. So I, I, I was very fortunate that I could tell whoever, and I did, which made me feel even better. Because, yeah, it really did. And my parents were also very open with their friends and who they taught, you know. They, I think, yeah, there were a couple of, I think, of my mom's friends. So she was a little bit, she didn't tell them straight away or she kept it a little bit. Um, but I think she was also thinking, and I, I'm not saying my mother was ashamed all the way. That's not what I'm saying at all. I, I think her process is, well, do I need to have this conversation? Absolutely everyone. And the answer is no. And that's absolutely fair too, you know. 
Um, but I think, yeah, I was expecting them to be a lot more ashamed. You know, there's a lot of shame in the addiction and, and, and the using and all of that. I thought it would, and they, they fooled everyone, um, you know, and lonely, um, cause it, there's a big stigma. There is. I think that's what you're asking, um, or alluding to because it's not something we talk about so openly and honestly. And yeah, the, oh, the community is actually way more supportive. Um, I think no matter what the, who the community, whichever community it is, I think saying you're a drug addict now, um, is not as bad, should I say? I think if you do something that is bad, it's frowned upon. You know, if you have an affair or you steal money or you something wrong, I suppose, but I think there's a lot more awareness around the fact that addiction is, yeah, I tell people, and I know this, that I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm sick. Um, mm. that's the difference, you know, I, I, and I thought I was a bad person because I was a drug addict. I thought I was a bad person, but I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm done some bad things, but I'm sick. And mm. unfortunately I'm still sick, even though I don't take drugs and it isn't a cure. Um, for my addiction, but there is treatment and the treatment is doing the things that I know I need to do and um, in order to stay clean and, and yeah, there's no cure for addiction. <laughs> and I think over the last few years, certainly in my circle, I've seen people come a lot more aware and accepting of these things. I think it's, people are going to rehab more openly these days. It's not such a, yeah, there's not as much of a stigma this it's still there it's for sure but less less so let's touch a little bit on the process to healing and and i think your comment there about i'm still sick and it's not going away is is a big it's a big statement right it's a mind-opening statement but once you told your parents and you felt that weight lift and you began to talk about the fact i'm an addict and i i want to get better you know i want to be a better version of this. Do you remember much about the healing process in the months that followed? And can you share what those memories were, what the experience was like? Absolutely. Um, when I, so when I told them, I, I was so depressed and kind of done with my, like all the things in my life that I was secretly kind of hoping they were going to throw me in like a fancy rehab and take my phone away. And I'd be like, cool. I'm, <laughs> I'm going on holiday. So, you know, I, I just wanted to hand my phone in and my, like, you know, my responsibilities and be like, okay, bye. But yeah, I moved in, I moved into my folk place, into my parents' house, which I actually wanted to do because my grandmother was bedridden at the time and I wanted to be able to spend more time with her and, I needed that nurturing and that love and it was nice to be in the house, you know, there's nothing better than not paying for toilet paper. Um, and I love being back in the house with them. Um, and I found an outpatient program. So I started outpatient is different to inpatient. So inpatient be you go into the rehab and you stay in the rehab 24 seven. Outpatient is you go and have a meeting, you know, five five or six times a week, the 
at the venue and, and then you go home back to your normal life. I did outpatient. And, you know, my whole life I thought I was right and I want to be right about, you know, about the way I think and, you know, I never want to be told what to do and classic um, addict kind of behavior. And I I realized that I, I needed to listen and take the suggestions. Um, I think the three things they teach you in in treatment are it's called how it's honesty open-mindedness and willingness um and i needed to be those three things um i needed to be person i was about absolutely everything um the yeah the open-minded is you need to be open-minded to find a new way of life that's going to work or help and i just knew that the way i had been doing it before and the best thinking that I know where my best thinking led me <laughs> and it wasn't a good place. So I, I needed, you know, um, I needed the help. Um, and yeah, the willingness is actually have to do the work. I think no one was going to get clean for me. You know, I, I love delegating. I, I love not doing the work. I love getting out of things, but no one was going to get clean for me. Um, I had to do the work and it was, it was on me to do it. Um, so I did the suggested things and they say, you know, start going to meetings. I went to meetings, get a sponsor. I got a sponsor, start doing step work. I started doing step work. Um, and luckily I, I loved all of it. Um, so a lot of it was uncomfortable. A lot of the work was uncomfortable. Um, and sometimes you don't feel like going to a meeting and sometimes you don't feel like talking to your sponsor and, you know, but I, I did it. Um, and it taught me a new way of life, taught me how to, how to, the, the initial, I don't know if you've ever heard of the pink cloud. No, I haven't. So a lot of addicts or alcoholics, um, any addiction, you, you, you stop the, the, the substances and it depends when it happens, but. For me, it happened at about 60 days, about two months afterwards. It's called the pink cloud where everything is amazing. You're high on life because you're not high anymore. It's <laughs> the most amazing feeling of you wake up every morning and you can breathe and food tastes good. And you, you, it's just, I'd liken it to being in love, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> with life. And it's, it's an incredible feeling, you know, and. That happened for me after I cried a lot and let it all out and sat in treatments with other people and told them all my shame. Um, you know, they kept on saying shame down exposure and it does, you know, um, the things that I was holding on to, the, the, the stuff that I thought was so bad, um, I told it and people still accepted me and I wasn't, it was okay. It's, it's, you know, shame really does die on exposure. And it was a lot of, you know, writing, writing my life story. It's one of the things you've got to do, you know, was, was cathartic. It took me back and it, it just, yeah, it, I felt like it all came out and I purged, um, cause I was there to get better. I wasn't there to maybe get better. I really and truly wanted to get better. Um, and it worked, it worked clearly, you know, um, and your pink cloud doesn't last forever. What's the shame? Sounds wonderful. Yeah, 
um, I think my pink cloud was kind of, um, yeah, a global pandemic will kind of put a little halter, you know, six months was when the pandemic hit. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's, let's talk about that because I mean, everything you're describing is, is a huge, you know, a fight and journey for any individual before a global pandemic and then being locked as a side. I can imagine you know, makes um, any form of emotional journey all the more complex. That was a, a very difficult time for, well, all human beings. So what impact did the pandemic have on your recovery, if if any? Big, big impact. I mean, I was just about six. I was coming up on my six month um, clean time. Um, I was very excited to go to my home meeting. Um, I was doing quite a lot of meetings around Cape Town, both NA and AA. Um, and it's quite a special thing when you, when you hit a milestone, um, to get your keyring and your friends that you've made recovery are there. And it's like, it's really, it's a great feeling. Um, and I, I was in London, um, with my brother and a friend, we were watching football and I, I came, well, I was planning on coming back to Cape Town to get this gearing and, um, pandemic happened. We ended up coming home earlier, it was a hell of a space, uh, but a whole nother story. And. I basically had to quarantine and then the country got shut down and then a week later I celebrated my six months and we were all moving on to Zoom. Um, the community was wanting to meet with each other um, and we did, we took it onto Zoom, it was hell of a painful in everyone learning how to mute themselves and not mute themselves and try to anything and it was, yeah, all of us uh, learning as we went. But I think not being able to meet with each other was was such a shock to the system. You know, I don't know how much you know about NA, but it's like you get to the venue, no matter where you go in the world. And funnily enough, I was in Liverpool two weeks before the pandemic actually happened and I wanted to do a meeting. So I go online, I look, I see that there's a meeting somewhere. I, I make a mission I, to this church and I'm like, is this the place? I'm like looking and there's two guys having a cigarette outside and I slowly walk up to them and hi, is this? And they're like, yeah in the right place, opens up his arms, gives me the biggest hug. You know, it's just a place where there's so much hugging. <laughs> and it's, so much it's, hugging. it's an uncomfortable thing if you're not a hugger. Luckily, I, I do enjoy a good hug. Um, but, yeah, it's a very affectionate place. You know, a lot of hand-holding and hugging. And we'll love you until you don't, you know, until you love yourself. And it, it yeah. Having so, a little hard when you're trying to... Uh socially distant totally totally it was it was difficult um yeah it, it really was um and not being able to i think enough time has passed now where we can well where i can look back and wonder just what an effect it really had i think we kind of just go into go mode and we focus on what we can and do um i'm super grateful that i was clean throughout that because i think um, if I hadn't have been, it would have been way worse and I would have been in a way worse place. Um, and I wouldn't have stopped using pandemic would have made me use more. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, but you know, I think, um, at the other side of the pandemic and being able to do meetings again and being able to not argue people over crazy things again, and being able to hold hands, being able to walk into shops without a mask on. Like I've still 
feel it's amazing. I love going to the airport now because I'm like, I don't need a mask. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, we have come out the other side. The, the community stuck by each other and, and not having meetings didn't mean uh, you couldn't stay clean. You do what you can in the situation that you're in. And if online meetings was what we, what we had, it's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. So if my maths is correct, you are now at three and a half years since the beginning of that process. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. My clean date is uh, September of 2019. Okay. Well, congratulations. You're nearly at four years. Um, tell me, you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, this is a sickness that doesn't go away. One of my last questions today is is around, you know, life ongoing now that you are clean. How hard is it to stay clean at festivities, at birthdays, at, I don't know, nightclubs, parties, at your, your schnitzel shop? How hard is that? Does it, does it get easier? Do you think about it every day? Tell us a little bit about that sickness, as, as you mentioned, that, that's always with you. Tell us how that feels in daily life. It does get easier. Um, it does. As time goes on, it gets easier. Um, there's no doubt about it. Me being still sick is become an addict. You know, not drinking and not doing drugs doesn't solve the problem. It solves a part of the problem, but it doesn't solve the problem because I still have to, I have to live. And by living, uh, there's so many things. There's food. There's sex. There's shopping. There's. I had an addiction. I started buying plants. I went through a breakup, and I moved into a new place. And I stopped buying plants. They started giving me the most amount of joy. And then I couldn't stop buying plants. Um, I know it sounds ridiculous, but my sponsor and I said it's become a problem um, because I can't like I, I drive past a plant shop and I have to go in and buy a plant it's, it's ridiculous you know um, and it addiction is not it's not about the hangover I didn't get clean to stop the hangovers it's step one of the 12 steps is um, we admit we were powerless over our addiction that our lives become unmanageable and the key there is the unmanageability i stopped doing the drugs because my life had become unmanageable if my life was still manageable i wouldn't have needed to stop mm -hmm. if if you're a if you can have you know i speak to a lot of people all the time and and they think they might have a problem i don't ask how much they're drinking i don't ask how often they're doing drugs i ask them What's your relationship like with your partner? What's your relationship like with your parents, kids? Are you feeding them? Are you paying the bills online? Are you, those are the things. If you're not doing those things, well, that's unmanageability. And that can, from any, that can come from drugs, that can come from uh, behavior. You know, if you're doing yoga four times a day and you're not picking up your kid from school, you, that's unmanageability. It's not, the drugs are a small symptom, actually. And I find unmanageability in many other things. And that's why I still need the treatment. And the treatment is checking in, um, doing an inventory, um, going to meetings. You know, if I don't go to meetings for a while, I forget that I'm an addict. Um, and I forget that I can't, you know, and 
it's like when I don't do the things, it's like my addict is in the background just doing push-ups, you know, just getting ready. He's like, he's there, you know, he's just, he, he's there in the background just waiting for me to the really bad daddy. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I know when I start not brushing my teeth at night or being in a rush, like I'll go to the bathroom and not wash my hands because I feel like I need to get something. These little things, these little things are actually big things in, in, I don't know if I'm explaining that kind of correct, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'm, a fascinating, uh, image to think of your, the addict version of, of you doing his, uh, his press ups in your brain somewhere waiting for your difficult day and, and to tell you to buy another plant. I'm saying it with a smile because you are telling your story with a smile. I know this is obviously a very serious, very serious reality, but I, I really appreciate your sort of imagery there. And, and I think the insight around once you're an addict, sort of once an addict, always an addict. And I think that your plant story here, it doesn't sound ridiculous at all. It sounds absolutely mind opening for someone who isn't an addict, at least today, to really understand that. I feel that that was a really powerful moment for me, just listening to you thinking, gosh, I never thought of that. I never sort of thought that an addict could move their addiction, you know, from something like drugs to something like shopping or, or sex or any of the other things that you mentioned. Um, so I, I honestly could continue this conversation all night I think I, I just I am so appreciative of your honesty and the light-heartedness that you bring to such a, a serious topic we're at four years you're at four years what do you hope for other people to understand as as you continue to talk about this as you continue to grow you told me you're moving house what what are your hopes for for you for the future but also for helping other people that have have been through or are going through a similar experience um yeah i i leave it yeah i'm packing up at the moment and, and leaving cape town uh which has been a place that has really memories and really good memories um and an incredible recovery community um, and I'm moving to a country where there isn't an incredible recovery community, which is a little bit nerve wracking, but I've been, you know, I, I know that I'm capable and I can do things. Um, what I want for me is, you know, a lot more of the same, a lot getting clean and, and, and learning a new way of life, um, has taught me how to cope with things. Um, because life, life still happens, you know, and, and, um, I'm able to process things and I'm able to, to feel things. And I, would, I just want to carry on doing that and showing up for people and, um, get it wrong. I still, I still, I still get it wrong. Um, but you know, I feel lucky to be alive. I really do. I think, I think if, if. Number one, the amount of times I shouldn't have got behind the wheel of a car. Number two, the drugs that I took, and 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 three, just chance. You know, I, it's 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 a gift to be alive right now, and I feel lucky. Um, yeah, there's no guarantee in my life that uh, it's going to end in a good way. Please God, forty or fifty years from now, but 
I won't, I, it's on me. It's my job to make sure that I don't, that it's not at the hands of drugs. You know, mm. that's, that, that's on me. And, uh, it's a little bit deep than how I think, yeah, I've, I've told the story in, in, in meetings before, you know, when I moved out of my apartment, when I got clean, I was up two or three weeks clean and moving into my, my, my parents' house and my mother came to help me. And uh, she was like cleaning through my drawers and finding concert tickets and, you know, empty boxes of condoms. I'm like, oh, just get out of the drawers, you know, please. Um, I had this vision of her having to do it um, in way worse circumstances. And I felt really lucky that I got to do that with her. Um, and that stuck with me, you know, that really has stuck with me that um, I've got a responsibility. And yeah, it's not that it, it's, there's harder things, you know, and I can do that. Um, I hope other people, um, yeah, is uh, if you're struggling, um, you don't have to, you really don't, um, may not seem that way, but if, if you are struggling, um, talk to someone about it, seek the help that you need and put your hand up and stop fighting. Um, it's. The best thing I did was surrender um, to the fact that I was an addict and just fully accepted it. Um, and I'm able now to live a really, yeah, it's not always happy, <laughs> but sorry, it's, it's really nice to be able to go to sleep um, at night and wake up fresh every morning uh, and check in with people and help people. And um, help myself. Yeah, I, I I feel like a normal member of society. And I didn't for a long time. Wow, I just think that is the most wonderful way to end. Because whether you know, as a, as a listener to the show, whether you are or are not an addict, whether you know an addict or you don't, those last comments there around being grateful to sleep well at night and wake up fresh in the morning is just such a wonderful thought for all of us you know you you've mentioned a couple of times today that life is not always happy but life is life you know and it's so easy for us to focus on the unhappy bits the stressful bits the difficult bits and actually not stop to think about the fact that we have them all you know and that that makes us very lucky to have the good the bad and the ugly and to be here to experience it and to pack up our houses with the people that we love and not without them so what an inspiring 44 minutes this has been really this show was created to help people empathize to help close the gaps between us to help people not jump straight to judgment when they hear the word in this case drug addict and immediately allow their brain to put in you know all of the images that hollywood and the media have given us over many many years and really understand the people behind these stories uh, to fill in the gaps, I always like to say. I truly believe that today you have given a gift to many people that were listening. So thank you very much for saying yes, saying yes to sharing your story and to creating some empathy. My last question is, is always the same, which is that this is an anonymous show, but every guest has the choice whether they would like to remain anonymous or share their name today. So that question is for you. Thank you, baby. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Um, it was great to chat. And um, yeah, uh, my name's Jeroen Wiesenbacher. Um, yeah, 34 years old. Um, and I'm about to move to Zimbabwe. Well, I think Zimbabwe, it's very lucky to have you, Yaron. Thank you very much for joining us today. And to all of the listeners, thank you for joining the two of us, for joining this story. Please do share it with somebody else that you think could benefit from this. I don't know if there's anyone that wouldn't benefit, to be honest, in listening to this story. But please do follow us for more. There's plenty more coming, plenty more stories from all around the world, from corners of the planet that perhaps you never get to telling the stories that help us pull us all back together and create connection in this very disconnected world of ours. So thank you for being here. To Yaron, to all of the listeners, my name's Mimi Nicklin, and it has been a pleasure to share this conversation with you today. Thank you for joining us today on Mimi UU. This episode is one in a series that has been designed to create empathy in our world. If you would like to join us on the show, please click on www joinmimiuu.com or follow us across social media at Mimi UU Show. I believe that the more the world talks about empathy, the more empathy the world will have. And I hope that this show is the beginning of doing just that.